Well, as Jonathan said, uh, Chris is out this weekend. My name is Eric. I am the student pastor here. So if this is your first time with us this morning or your first time uh, tuning in online. If this goes sideways, give us another chance next week. I think Chris will be back. Um, so if you have your Bible or your phone or your tablet or whatever you read scripture on, if you would go ahead and turn over to Daniel. Uh, we'll, be in, we'll be there for a good portion of the morning. So you can go ahead and get there. Uh, several years ago, uh, Daniel is one of my favorite books in the in the Bible, and so I was excited to be asked to to teach on it. But several years ago, I was in Colorado with Chris, our our pastor. We'd worked together before, and he asked me to teach through Daniel. And so, being excited and only having one Sunday and not getting to teach a lot of Sundays and having so much in Daniel, I was excited about. It. I tried to mash it all into one half hour, and as you can imagine, it didn't go well. And by the end of it, I had no idea what the point was or what I was trying to say, and neither did anyone else. And so I promise I won't do that this morning. <clears throat> what we are going to do this morning is continue the series that Chris started last week. It's called Back to School. It's we're trying to figure out how to navigate into what's ahead of us. We have no idea. We've never been here before. We've never been in this situation before. And so all of us across all of our lives are trying to figure out how to best handle and make decisions with the information we have. And we're also on Wednesday nights at Elevate, which is our student ministry. We're doing a series called Letters from Exile, Trusting God When the World Turns Upside Down. And so this morning, this is going to kind of serve a dual purpose. We're just going to kind of dovetail those two things together because it fits. Or at least that's the idea. Um, at Elevate, we've been talking about Joseph from Genesis, who for around 15 years experienced some of the worst kinds of things that humanity has to offer. Um, he's trafficked into slavery by his own family. Um, he's falsely accused of rape by the wife of his master, having been sold into slavery. She assaulted him, and he wanted no part of it, so he just hit the door running, and she's there holding his garment, or she's ripped his shirt off. I don't know how that worked. Um, probably don't want all the details on that, but um, she, in the wake of that, accuses him of rape, and she legitimizes that claim by using some racial discrimination because the people of Egypt were not fond of the people of the land of Canaan. And so she uses that to kind of back up her claim, which they believe on that basis. And they find Joseph and they arrest him and they throw him in prison for more than a decade. Now, we know that Joseph's life sort of takes a turn up. He's, he finds favor in, <clears throat> by interpreting some dreams, which is going to kind of be a theme of the morning. Not the theme of the morning. We're not going to talk about dream interpretation. But um, he finds favor and ascends to power in Egypt during a time of famine, which... But Joseph, in authority, he had had this vision that this famine was coming. And so he starts to enact this plan to store grain ahead of this famine. And so, sure enough, the famine comes, and Egypt's ready. They have all this grain stored up. Well, the lands around them don't, don't have any preparations made because they didn't know what was happening. Jacob, Joseph's dad, sends his other sons to Egypt to buy grain because they finally they run out. They don't have any option. He sends them to Egypt to buy grain. Now, remember, there's 15 years have passed since they sold Joseph into slavery. They have no idea what has happened with Joseph or to Joseph or if he's alive. And they get to Egypt to buy grain, and they come face to face with their baby brother, who is now in this position of authority and power. And they're right in front of him. And as you might imagine, they were a little uneasy. When he revealed himself to them, maybe they were scared to death because Joseph ultimately stands in a position to be the decider of their fate. 
Their fate is in his hands, not only with the grain, but their very lives. Joseph could have had them executed and buried in the sand, and nobody would have ever thought anything about it. But he doesn't do that. He says, no, 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 no. I don't want you to be afraid of me. You don't need to be afraid of me. And then what, Joseph, what proceeds to come out of Joseph's mouth is not only one of the most profound things in the book of Genesis, but it's one of the most profound things that God reveals to us about himself through his written word and is kind of an overarching theme of all of Scripture. He says, he says to his brothers, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. I don't hold it against you. Don't think about it. Because God sent me here ahead of you to preserve life. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And then in the wake of that, he takes Jacob and his brothers. Now, that's the whole like nation, what would become the nation of Israel. That's it. It's just the family of Jacob and all his sons. There were like 12 of them and all their kids and grandkids. So he just kind of poop and they moved to Egypt. Joseph's in good with Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, you bring your family out here. I'll give them the best land in Egypt and we'll take care of them. Happy ending. Then you get to the beginning of Exodus. And it says there was a new Pharaoh, and he didn't know Joseph. He didn't care about Joseph or Joseph's family. And the Hebrew people had grown at this point, and they were starting to make the Egyptians nervous, so they enslaved them. And so the nation of Israel is born in Egyptian slavery. And Joseph, before that, when he says to his brothers, don't be afraid of me. Don't be afraid of me. God put me here. Jacob dies, and the brothers get nervous again. They're like, oh, maybe he was just waiting on Dad to kick the bucket, and now he's going to get us. And Jacob says, Joseph says, no, 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 no. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive just as they are today. And so Joseph, through all of his pain and horrifying mistreatment, um, is able to recognize God's sovereignty in action and discern that something, he didn't probably know what it was through all those 15 years, but he knew that God was doing something. He recognized that, that he was going through this period of life so that God could do something amazing. And his uncompromising faith in God allowed him to see God at work even if he didn't know what that plan was, he knew who God was. And knowing who God was, he does not compromise. I thought we were going to talk about Daniel. I think we're talking about Joseph. Yeah, we're going to get to Daniel. We're going to fast forward through a lot of things. I won't go there. It's through the Exodus and the Promised Land and the time of the judges and Saul and David and most of the kings and the split of the kingdom and all kinds of stuff. We get to Daniel chapter 1. You can read along as I'm going to kind of paraphrase some of this, um, but you can see that it's there. Um, we're kind of at the beginning now of the Babylonian exile when Nebuchadnezzar, the, the king of Babylon, the empire, takes Jerusalem and he starts deporting people uh, from Judah <clears throat> throughout the Babylonian empire. And this is happening because of the idolatry and the sin of God's people. It's not just a random event in history. God had been patient with his people for a long time, and through many prophets had tried to warn them of exactly this happening. And like all good believers, they listened to God the first time and did exactly what God said. No, 
They rejected him over and over and over. And so finally, at the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, is killed. And they start spreading the Hebrew people out across the Babylonian Empire. And as they're doing this, they start handpicking some of the best and the brightest, and even Scripture says the best-looking and they start to assimilate them into the king's palace. And so they were doing this with all these cultures. And the Babylonian Empire was huge. It covers most of what we know as the Middle East today, all the way over in toward India, and then also the kind of the northern lip of the African continent and up around Greece. I mean, it was a huge empire. And what they were doing, they would take these people and disperse them across the empire because they didn't want pockets of resistance concentrated together that might pose a threat. And they take their best and their brightest, and it says that they were to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So basically what they're doing is social reprogramming. They're taking the best that these cultures have to offer, and they're making them their own. And so now Israel's identity is stripped from them. Not Israel, sorry. Judah's identity is stripped from them. They're taken from the promised land, which remember, Joseph's family, slavery, wandering in the desert, promised land. It's the first time they had ever been a nation in the promised land. They identified themselves heavily with their land. And because of their sin and their idolatry, God is now removing that from them. Or more accurately, he is removing them from that. And so not only are their national identities being stripped away, but their personal identities are being stripped away. And so it says that among them are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and they gave them new names. Daniel becomes Belteshazzar, Hananiah becomes Shadrach, Mishael becomes Meshach, and Azariah becomes Abednego. And those are the names that we're most familiar with, most likely. Look what Daniel 1.8 says. It says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. Or with the king's wine. So part of this deal was it was a three-year program. They technically teach him the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. They eat food from the king's own table and drink his wine. And they basically are conditioned in this, in this really kind of under the circumstances, really great position. Daniel resolves he's not going to defile himself in this way. And so they work out a deal with their handlers so that they can honor God and stay in favor with the king. In doing so, gains them some clout with their handlers. And it was... It was a little bit of a tricky situation. So Daniel says to his handler, it's like, hey, I don't, I don't want to eat that stuff. I just want to eat vegetables and drink water. And the guy was like, no, I'm not going to do that because you're supposed to be in great condition when we present you to the king. And if I give you just vegetables and water and you turn into a puny good for nothing and I take you before the king and he says, what's wrong with these guys? And I say, well, he just ate vegetables and drank water the whole time. And the king's going to say to me, well, why? Were they doing that? And he said, because that's all I gave them, and he's going to cut my head off. So, no, we're not doing that. The Old Testament's good. Good stuff in the Old Testament. But they put it forward to him again, and they say, test us for ten days. Let us eat vegetables and drink water, and then you can compare us to the other guys and see how we're doing. And if you don't like what you see, then you do what you will. These guys are not in control of their circumstances. None of us are in control of our circumstances. There's nothing they can do about Nebuchadnezzar or what's happened to Jerusalem or the exile out of Judah into the Babylonian kingdom. They have no control over this. But what they do have is control over how they respond to it. And they choose to honor God. In the case of these four young men, they chose not to compromise their faithfulness to God in the midst of navigating this tricky situation. That's really like the understatement of the 
forever because it's not just a tricky situation. It's, it's chaos, and it's a horrific situation for God's people to be removed from their land. And here they are trying to honor God in this foreign kingdom in the king's palace. Daniel, if you read chapter 2, Daniel kind of gains a little favor with Nebuchadnezzar because he's a dream interpreter. Again, that's not our theme because I can't interpret dreams, so there you go. Um, <clears throat> but it's just kind of an interesting note that that happens again. Um, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego find themselves in a little bit of trouble. Nebuchadnezzar thought really highly of himself, and so he decided to have a golden statue of himself made. And he decided that when they play music across the kingdom, everybody would, or in the city, everybody would bow down to the golden statue. And Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego said, mm, we're not going to do that. Now, these aren't just four nobodies on the fringes of the empire and culture. These are guys that were handpicked to be a part of this reconditioning program, to be trained and brought up in the way of the Chaldeans in the Babylonian Empire. So they were somebody. They had favor with the king at this point. And so some of the Chaldeans start to make some noise about it. They say, these guys are not bowing down to your statue. And as you might imagine, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't real happy about that. So he demands that they be brought to him. And this is what he says. He says, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this is Daniel chapter 3, verse 14, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Okay, so now they're face-to-face with the king, and he says, I can kind of sense this being a little sarcastic. He says, now, if you're ready, when you hear the music play, bow down to my statue. No harm, no foul. I'll give you another chance. Maybe you didn't know what was going on. Maybe you didn't think you had to do it. I don't know what the, what the situation might be. But now, we're going to play the music, and I'm going to watch you, and we're going to bow down to my statue. And they say, okay. They say, no, we're not doing that. In fact, I love their response, and I, obviously it's not in the text. We don't know what their tone was, but I, I like to imagine that they say, it says, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, as the start of their reply. I like to think that they sort of replied like, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, you silly man who made a statue of yourself. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this is what's going to happen... Our God that we serve is able to deliver us. He will deliver us. And if he doesn't, we're still not bowing down to your goofy statue and we're still not serving your false gods. And Nebuchadnezzar says, you know what? Maybe I was unreasonable. Let's talk about this. No. He goes into a rage. This is his face change toward these young men. Now, I don't know what that means, but you know what that means, right? When someone is like about to totally lose their cool, you know, the skin starts to tighten and the veins start to come out. Eyeballs get big. You don't know, like, mm, you know, what's about to happen. And they stoke this fire up and they drag them up there. And it says the fire was so hot that the men who dragged them up there died from the heat. And it would have been, it would have been so easy for these guys just to bow down. And in their hearts, be like, God, we're just kidding. We're just trying to make this dude happy, okay? But we're just going to bow down in front of this statue. They're saying, no, we are not doing that. Can you imagine that? 
Like standing alone in that culture and like that mass of cultures there. And you know there's some of your own, there's some of their own people there going, dude, you're embarrassing us. Please get on the ground. They're going to kill us all. I'm like, dude, we're not doing that. Get up. You know, like why are you bowing down to this golden statue? And there they are by themselves in uncompromising confidence in God. He will deliver us because he's able. And if he doesn't, it doesn't matter. And we know from the text that God does, in fact, miraculously deliver them. But don't let that fact cause you to miss the impact of the risk that these young men were taking. Had they been thrown into the flames and burned up, it would not diminish what's happening here one iota. In my mind, it would make it a little more captivating. They knew, as do we from reading scripture, that sometimes God chooses to deliver and sometimes he does not. But God's plan is always in action. We're told in Isaiah, God says, my ways are higher than your ways. And like Joseph, Joseph saw God at work. He didn't know exactly what he was doing, but he saw God at work. I doubt that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew what God was doing. I doubt that Daniel knew what God was doing. But they knew, that they knew who God was. And because they knew who God was, their unwavering trust in God it's the source of their unwillingness to compromise. There was more at stake than themselves in that moment. And I think we lose sight of this sometimes because we, we see what Joseph went through, but we also see God raise him up to a position of, of great authority in the, in the land of Egypt as a foreigner. We see God deliver these young men. We see later in this book that God delivers Daniel from the lion's den. Right under not Nebuchadnezzar, but Darius or Cyrus. Maybe I should read the Bible. Um, and we see Job's life. He's ravaged to the dirt, but God restores him at the end. And so we think, well, maybe if God puts us through something, well, he's, he'll give it back at the end. He'll, he'll raise us up. And he'll, but is that true all the time? It's not true all the time. We're not John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ. In the same sand that, that Jesus walked in, John the Baptist is, is preaching his coming and he's thrown into jail. And after he's there for a while, he sends some of his followers to find Jesus. And he says, now you ask Jesus, he said, are you the one we've been expecting? John knew dang good and well who Jesus was. But he's starting to have doubts because he's there in a prison cell. It's not looking good for him. He sends them to Jesus. He says, are you the one that we've been expecting or shall we wait for someone else? P.S. Come get me out of jail. And Jesus sends them back to John. He says, don't worry, buddy. I'm going to come get you out of jail. No, that's not what he says. He says, you go tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have the good news preached to them. Period. End of transmission. I am the one. And John ultimately is beheaded and has his head served up on a silver platter. That's not a happy ending. We know from various traditions that the apostles of Christ, the disciples of Jesus himself, uh, who literally walked with Christ and sat and ate with Jesus and heard his teaching, these men who would change the world in the wake of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of them 
die strange, sometimes horrific deaths in exile and in various forms of persecution. One of the, one of the best examples for me, I, I relate to Peter a lot because Peter was like real up and down. So he's like my spirit apostle, you know. And so like he's one of the best examples because Peter knew about compromise, right? He had denied Jesus three times very publicly, very passionately. He curses a little girl out in public because she says, hey, I've seen you with him. Peter's like, you know, and she keeps pressing him. And he's like, no, I'm not. And then I'm not going to say kind of what that text translates into the idea that he says. But he basically goes off on this little girl and pokes him. I don't know this guy. But Jesus restores him in a, one of my favorite kind of moments in Scripture at the end of John. Jesus is resurrected, and he's, he's there with, with Peter and John, and he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, I do. He says, well, feed my sheep. And he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, I do. Go feed my sheep. And it doesn't say this in the, in the Bible, but I kind of imagine that Jesus kind of took, took his face in both hands and like looked into his soul through his eyeballs and said, Peter, do you love me? And it wounded Peter to be asked a third time. He was hurt. And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I do. And Jesus says, go feed my sheep. And Peter gets taken back to school by Jesus on who Jesus really is. And having seen Jesus for who he really is, and if anybody should have known, it should have been Peter, right? And because, like, there he was. It's not like Jesus wasn't telling him every other day that his life was going to be given up and that he was going to be raised again. And remember Peter's reply? Never. I'll never let that happen. Shing, shing, with the sword. He cuts the guy's ear off when they come to arrest him. Jesus picks it up and he like puts it back on the guy's head. Like, how embarrassing would that be if you're Peter? You know what I mean? Like, dude, I'm trying to do something here. And, and Jesus is like, yeah, me too. Can you calm down? And, and they, Peter goes from here to preaching at Pentecost in the beginning of Acts. And this is just a few days. I mean, it's just a handful of days span, right, from, from trying to hide in a crowd and, and cursing out a little girl to standing on a table and preaching at Pentecost. And, and the book of Acts describes that as, as Peter preaching the gospel and the, all of those people, all of those people from all over the place who had come to this festival hear this gospel preached to them in their own language. It is an amazing scene. And there's Peter. And then just a couple chapters later in Acts 4, another one of my favorite moments in all of Scripture, they're arrested. Peter and John are arrested and they're dragged in front of the Sanhedrin. And they're like, hey, guys, we, we need you to calm down. We need you to stop. And remember, these are the same people that arrested and, and kind of falsely tried Jesus and had him, you know, got the ball rolling toward Jesus' crucifixion. So there's Peter and John, right, in the same situation. I said, we need you to stop. We can't deny what you're saying, but we need you to stop. And Peter basically says, you do what you got to do. But I can't stop talking about what I've seen and what I've heard. It's real similar to the response that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego give to Nebuchadnezzar. Hey, do what you got to do. I'm not playing this game. And they let him go. But tradition tells us that ultimately Peter is crucified. And he begs to be crucified upside down because he doesn't consider himself worthy to be killed in the same manner as Jesus. That's a radical transformation, having seen who Jesus really is. And I wonder sometimes, 
if they knew if they knew they were changing the world fundamentally changing the world they knew that Jesus had what if they knew what they were doing but in that matter of a couple of weeks Peter's focus shifted from protecting himself to preaching the gospel because now for Peter there's something more at stake and there's always something more at stake Joseph had an idea of what God was doing, but he didn't grasp the full glory of it. He knew at the end of, his, of those events, having risen to power in, uh, in Pharaoh's court and having arranged this, this grain storage and to kind of solve this famine, and he said that many lives would be preserved. He knew that God had done that. Did he know that God was about to have him move his family there so that his people could be born in slavery, so that he could demonstrate his power, as Romans says, over Pharaoh? in the Exodus and give his people a promised land and that that whole history would unravel to the point of the cross. Did Joseph know he was a part of that? Did these guys in the book of Daniel, did they have any idea what God was doing? What was God doing? It's not just a neat story. There's something in play here. Daniel interpreting this guy's dreams and the radical, defiant faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego lead to two situations where Nebuchadnezzar publicly gives the God of the Hebrews glory and honor. And then he dies. There was something bigger going on. It would have been a lot easier for these guys to just eat the king's food and drink his wine. To consider their circumstance a blessing of some kind because they were in a good position while many others weren't. It would have been easier to just bow down to the golden idol because that's what they were being told to do. That's what everybody else was doing. It would be easier for John and Peter to acquiesce and keep quiet when told to stop preaching the gospel. And I don't know, we're not told this, but maybe they thought they could intimidate Peter, the guy who would just, had just kind of you know, freaked out and made a scene <laughs> in public. Peter says, no. You decide what you're going to do to us, but we can't stop talking about what we've seen and heard. And that's sort of the difference maker. We can't stop talking about what we have seen and heard. They had experienced Jesus. They knew him. Joseph knew who God was. He didn't know what he was doing, but he knew who he was. And it's easier to go with the flow than it is to do the right thing. Because we can justify all kinds of things. It's easier to check out of our marriages than it is to fully commit and to make them work. It's, it's easier to be one person at home and another person at work. It's easier to blur the lines of right and wrong when we're at work because who's going to know? You fudge a number here and cheat a little here. Nobody's going to know. But there's something more at stake in those small situations. And I think, I think for, for a lot of us, I think that, that people tend, like if we're you know, if someone like dragged you out in public and was like, bow down to this idol or we're going to throw you in this fire, there's something that rises up in us that goes, no, I am not going to do that. When it's big, sometimes we can rise to that occasion. 
But in the little things, sometimes we can't because we think it doesn't matter because there's nothing at stake because no one's watching. It's easier not to talk about Jesus because somebody might think we're weird. Well, I got news for you. You're weird. I'm weird. We're all weird. Some of us are more weird. You're welcome. It's easier to identify ourselves by our politics than by our Savior or by our opinion about some topic as opposed to our identity in Christ. It's easier almost always to compromise in the wrong way, but it always costs more in the end. And you may not be the one that gets the bill, but it always costs more because there's always something more at stake. For Joseph and Peter and Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and me and you and everybody you know, it's easier to focus on our circumstances and our own comfort or advantage. Think about Peter, right? I don't know what would have been going through Peter's, Peter's mind. He, he clearly wasn't listening the many times that Jesus had kind of tried to tell them what was going on because they come to arrest him, and not just Peter, they come to arrest Jesus and they take him off and they all, they all run off. It says, it says in Scripture that one of them took off and one of the guards grabbed his garment and he shook out of it and just ran off naked. Now that's a sight that I don't want to see. But he wasn't about to stick around for what was happening. Peter was more interested in protecting himself because whatever, whatever notion he had, whatever vision he had of being there with Jesus, we know the Jews were expecting a mighty Messiah to come and sort of take on the Roman Empire. I don't know what Peter expected. He hadn't been doing that for three years, so I don't know if they thought he was going to start or what, or if they thought everybody, everything was just going to continue to go the way it was going. But when they come and take Jesus, Peter's out of there, man. They all were. easier to focus on our circumstances than what God might be doing even when we don't have a fat clue what that might be it's easier to let the world tell us that God can't that God won't or that God isn't when we lose sight of who God is it's easier to let our circumstances dictate our faith than it is to resolve to let our faith dictate our response to our circumstances. Because it's not about me. It's not about my comfort or my advantage or my position. And sometimes God blesses us and sometimes he puts us through the ringer. The sun rises and the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. We live in a broken world and God is still in control. We don't get to choose our circumstances. But we absolutely get to choose how we respond to the circumstances that we're in. And sometimes it might cost us. We pray that it would never cost us our lives, but that day may be coming. We can run and hide and distance ourselves from Christ like Peter did in a moment or very publicly. Or having learned who Christ is, we can stand and say, 
you can't do anything to me that makes it worth compromising my faith in who God is. As we move forward into in not just these circumstances, not just the, what's happening in the world around us, I don't have a book of answers. The Bible is our guide. It's God's written revelation to us about who God is. Now, I can't look in here and find every possible scenario that I can imagine happening in life and smash some Bible verse on top of it. But what I can do is look in here and learn about who God is. When I know who God is, then I can trust him. I can stand in front of anything and say, my God can and my God will. And if he doesn't, it does not matter. Because God is unchanging. And he's in control of this weird, broken world. And he loves us. And as we learn, as we, as we dive into scripture, not just as a reading habit so that we can check it off our list, because everybody keeps telling me I've got to read my Bible, but I've read Numbers, and I don't ever want to read that again. And I don't understand Song of Solomon. And, like, there's some weird stuff. And, you know, like, we get it. But we learn. We learn who God is. And when we learn the heart of God, we can trust the heart of God. And as we learn who God is, and if we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and we see what Scripture says, and we believe that God is at work always doing something that we cannot even begin to fathom. And we can start to trust him. And as we trust him, that trust will be the source of our unwillingness to compromise. Because there's something more at stake. Just like with Peter, we learn that it's not about us. God is not interested in my comfort. God is interested in his glory. He is interested in Jesus Christ being exalted in our lives. There's always something more at stake. Our witness is at stake if we compromise. The glory of God in someone's mind is at stake. We're not going to compromise God's glory. What about the people around us? What about the people we work with and the people we live next to and the people we hang out with and then the people we come to church with, right? Some of us have different personalities and we're different people in different places. And your witness is at stake when you do that. And we don't say these things. We don't pursue righteousness so that someone might think better of me. Well, some of us do. We shouldn't because it doesn't matter. Right? I know teenagers get tired of hearing like the same three things, like the holy trinity of youth ministry, right? Like don't cuss, don't drink, don't have sex, right? And you get tired of hearing that over and over. You're like, okay, I get it. Stop telling me that. And the reason people keep telling you that is because we're trying to keep you from compromising who God wants you to be and what God is doing in your life. And there's more to tell you. I promise I'm teenagers. That's not all I'm going to say to you. Um, we get tired sometimes of hearing the same things, right? When you go to talk to somebody about something that's going on in your life and you don't know what to do or what to think or how to approach it, and somebody tells you, read your Bible and pray. You're like, oh, is that the best you can give me? Just read your Bible and pray. Oh, you know, how do we know who God is? 
in Scripture. How do we know the heart of God? By meditating on His Word and praying. Reading your Bible and praying are the two most important things you could possibly do. And when we fall out of that habit, when we lose sight of that, then it seems like it's just, okay, you just want me to check these things off the list. No. No. I want you to go to the stream of living water for life, for wise counsel, and for godliness. And we lose sight of that. When we learn who God is, we trust. And that trust will be the source of our unwillingness to compromise. Because there's always something at stake. It might be our witness. It might be the glory of God in someone's mind. It might be the gospel itself. Maybe you are being moved into a position through something going on in your life that you don't want any part of. Maybe somebody is watching you and that you're being put in that position to preserve life as Joseph was. But now, through the gospel, when we compromise We put that at risk. The gospel itself is at stake in the lives of people around us. And so I want to encourage you, as basic as it seems, read your Bible and pray. Because the living God has revealed himself to us and his spirit will lead us through everything that we encounter, good or bad. No compromise.